Jesus invested the majority of his ministry time in the Galilee region. It's in Galilee that Jesus established his home base, called his disciples, and performed many of the great miracles that we read about in Scripture. But what, if any, of the biblical Galilee remains today? What is there to be seen that dates back to the time of Christ? You're going to love what you discover as you join us for The Land and the Book. Glad you're with us today. I'm John Geiger, and our host is the one and only Dr. Charlie Dyer. And Charlie, I'm looking forward to our conversation in just a few minutes that you and I actually recorded at Magdala in Israel. Is that place amazing or what? It is truly amazing. And you go back uh, 10 years, and there was really not much there. Now that synagogue, when we uh, were in that area, truly fascinating. And Charlie does a great job, by the way, of uncovering some of the mysteries of Magdala. That's why we've titled our conversation in that direction, and I hope you'll stick around for that. Right now, though, a look at current events. After we ask you, once our program is over, where do you turn for more content, more ideas about Israel, the Bible, and sharing the gospel with Jewish people? Life and Messiah is focused on producing high-quality video content on their YouTube channel. Engaging videos are being released twice a week related to these important topics, we actually encourage you to check out their content, which you'll find inspiring and uplifting. Now, as a special for Land in the Book listeners, if you visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button, you can get a sneak peek at one of their upcoming videos and subscribe to their channel. Now, that's lifeinmessiah.org and then click on the Moody Radio button. Well, let's take a look at current events from the Middle East region, stories this week unfolding. As Israel's Knesset prepares to resume in about five weeks, another controversy is apparently brewing within the ruling coalition. Help us understand the potential conflict between the Haredi parties and those pushing for judicial reform. Could this lead to the breakup of the coalition? You know, John, for the average person, the inner workings of that coalition can seem hopelessly confusing. Uh, So let me try and simplify things first. Israel doesn't have a two-party government like we're used to here in the U.S. Initially, 40 parties submitted lists of candidates to run in the last election. When the election was over, 10 of those parties made it into the Knesset. The largest number of votes went to Benjamin Netanyahu's party, which received a total of 32 seats. But 61 seats are needed to have a majority government, so Netanyahu had to find a working coalition. His government includes center-right conservatives, as well as different Haredi, that's the ultra-Orthodox parties, and two far-right nationalist parties. Now, though supposedly agreeing to support common goals, each party has its own agenda, and that's where the problem is now surfacing. A major goal of the Likud party and the two far-right parties was judicial reform. We've seen the conflict that's resulted, and so far they've only passed one part of the overall package. They want to push for further reform this fall. But this isn't the primary goal of the ultra-Orthodox parties. They want legislation exempting ultra-Orthodox men in religious studies from serving in the military. They're concerned that the fight over judicial reform could bring down the government before a new draft law is passed. They're also concerned that they could be blamed for some of the current conflict, hurting their chances of being part of any future coalition government. As a result, They're threatening to vote against any additional judicial reform until a new draft law is passed by the Knesset. That could effectively halt further judicial reforms until next year. Netanyahu is working to smooth over the areas of disagreement. It's possible he might even be able to use this controversy to his advantage, slowing down further judicial reform as he tries to seek some sort of compromise with those in the opposition. 
Now, Netanyahu is an artist politically, but it's going to take all his skill to keep his coalition partners in line. Boy, sounds like it. Clashes in Libya once again threaten the peace of that country. What's the latest source of conflict there? Yeah, Libya, like so many of those countries in the Middle East, just continues to experience conflict that won't settle down. Now, on the one side is the government of National Accord. That's the one that has the capital in Tripoli. That's the government that's recognized by the U.N., the United States, Turkey, Qatar, Italy, and some others. But the rival government in eastern Libya, in Benghazi, is supported by Khalifa Haftar, and they have the financial and military support of the UAE and Egypt and France and Russia and Saudi Arabia. Now, in spite of sporadic talks, the two sides haven't been able to come to any agreement on holding national elections. The latest threat, though, arose out of a split between two groups connected with the U.N.-sponsored government in Tripoli. So it's not just the two governments on the east and west. Now there's division within the government itself. One group is the Special Democratic Forces, which controls the airport. The other was known as the 444th Brigade, which is controlled by a man named Mahmoud Hamza. Uh, The clash began when the Special Deterrence Force detained Hamza at the airport. Now, it's not completely clear why he was detained, but it sparked fighting between the two groups in Tripoli that left 55 dead and nearly 150 injured. The initial conflict was finally resolved when Hamza was released. But the clash points to the larger issue of rival governments and their rival military forces trying to gain the upper hand in a very fractured country. The problem will be far more difficult to resolve, and it suggests that elections for Libya are still not going to take place anytime soon. It's the land and the book from Moody Radio. Our segment one is always dedicated to a look at current events. Recently, around-the-clock excavations took place in one of the most sensitive areas within the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. Charlie, where were those excavations taking place, and what, if anything, was discovered? Well, the excavations took place in the floor underneath the rotunda, right at the entrance to the edicule, that building where Joseph of Arimathea's tomb was thought to be. Archaeologists worked around the clock for seven days trying to determine the history of that area. The edicule had to be closed during the excavations. Now, John, that work began about a week after the two of us were there with our group. Hmm. The goal of these excavations was to help fill in some missing pieces about the layout of the edicule. There weren't any earth-shattering finds, but they did discover a hoard of coins dating to the time of a Roman emperor who reigned just a few decades after the church was started. They also found graffiti from the 1700s. Graffiti's been around a long time. Uh, This graffiti was Greek, Latin, and Armenian. One of the benefits of the excavation actually had nothing to do with what they found. The project helped bring together the different groups that occupy the church And that's a major step forward because that church has had a history of distrust between the groups, so much so that a Muslim family keeps the key to the church and has done so since 1517 because none of the Christian groups trust the other. They're afraid of being locked out. So hopefully this newfound spirit of cooperation will continue to grow and bear fruit. Uh, Certainly that's a better reflection on Jesus than the fistfights and other conflicts from the not-too-distant past. Drones have become part of the military arsenal for many countries, but Israel is about to deploy drones in their military in a way that will help save lives rather than take them. Tell us about the uh, dronebulence soon to be deployed by the Israeli military. Yeah, yeah, dronebulence is a mashup of the words drone and ambulance. Now, to envision a dronebulence, imagine a small airplane that can take off like a normal drone, then have its wings and rotors tilt to allow it to fly like a normal aircraft. Uh, The drone will fly autonomously using pre-programmed waypoints 
similar to drones that don't require human remote control. Uh, the drone is capable of evacuating wounded soldiers from the front lines or of carrying supplies to units out in the field. It's capable of carrying up to 550 pounds for up to 30 miles. The IDF is currently developing an integration plan to incorporate these drones into service, and that'll be done within the next five years. Hopefully, this equipment will also find its way into commercial use, enabling rescue units to fly in supplies or evacuate the wounded in areas with limited access. Now, this kind of drone would be welcome indeed in disaster relief operations, and uh, it's all thanks to a creative development team and to the resources of the IDF that are helping make this possible. And one final item of note is the partial collapse of the ancient aqueduct that once carried water to Caesarea. Charlie, I'm wondering what happened. You know, I've seen some of the photos. One of these arches collapsed. You and I stood in one of those to record some video content for Moody Radio. I'm glad we weren't there when that particular arch collapsed, but can the thing be repaired? Why did it collapse in the first place? Yeah, and and the uh, why it collapsed is actually part of the problem. There was no major storm. There was no major wind. There wasn't an earthquake. It just fell down, and it fell down in the middle of the night. As they said, it's uh, good it did because uh, people stand under those arches. Uh, someone could have been hurt or killed. Now, most of us who've been there, you know, we see those arches, and we see that aqueduct that once brought water to Caesarea. Uh, and actually, when people are there, we tell them it's two aqueducts side by side. The original was built by King Herod, and then a second aqueduct was bolted on, so to speak, on the Mediterranean side by Hadrian about 100 years after the time of Christ. The end of the aqueduct was washed away centuries ago by erosion from the Mediterranean. And then just a few years ago, there was a storm that almost toppled the part visited by tourists, though it did remain standing. But last Thursday night, a 20 to 30 foot section of that aqueduct on the Hadrian side, the Mediterranean side, collapsed, just leaving a pile of rubble. The Antiquities Authority is looking at the possibility of restoring that section. They're also checking what's still there to make sure it's not in danger of collapse. As we would always tell people during our visit, the aqueduct's about 2,000 years old, and sadly, the force of time and nature will eventually bring it down. Uh, the event last Thursday was a graphic reminder just how suddenly that could happen. Well, we're about to leave our studio and head to the Galilee region. Biblical Galilee remains today, and believe it or not, there are some things you can still see that date back to the time of Christ, among them a synagogue he may well have visited and taught in. That's our conversation up next on The Land and the Book. Have you been to our website lately? You can go there to find out about today's guest, past programs, future programs, and more. It's all at thelandandthebook.org. The Mysteries of Magdala, unveiled next. Jesus invested the majority of his ministry time in the Galilee region. It's in Galilee that Jesus established his home base, called his disciples, and performed many of the great miracles that we read about in Scripture. But what, if any, of the biblical Galilee remains today? What is there to be seen that dates back to the time of Christ? Welcome back to The Land and the Book with Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, and today's conversation is coming to you from Israel. Charlie, there are old towns, there are ancient towns, but where you and I stand right now is definitely ancient. What town is this, and where is it on the map? Yeah, John, we're at ancient Magdala. It's on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. It's north of the city of Tiberias, but south of the city of Capernaum. 
Okay. And what was Magdala known for in its day? You know, it was a fish processing center. It was actually known for drying and salting fish that was literally sold from the Sea of Galilee throughout the Roman Empire. So a big center of uh, distribution for fish. You know, why here? I mean, we're on this lake. It has all kinds of great fish, all kinds of great fishing, all kinds of great ports. I imagine why McDonald? Uh, we don't know. But for whatever reason, they, they decided this was a great spot to be doing the drying of the fish, the salting. They certainly had fresh water here where they could keep the fish while they were doing the, the uh, salting and drying process, uh, keep them in tanks. Uh, but uh, for whatever reason, this became that dominant place. It was very near the ancient uh, uh, Via Maris, the, the way of the sea. So there certainly had connections uh, both west and east through the Roman Empire. What's with the name Magdala? And do we know, in fact, that there's some kind of historical connection with Mary Magdalene of Scripture? Well, the name Magdala actually comes from the Hebrew word Migdal, which meant tower. Uh, there's no direct evidence. You know, they didn't find anything here that said this is the home of, of Mary Magdala. Uh, but uh, we do know that Mary was her name, and, and uh, the fact that they call her Mary Magdalene means she was Mary or Miriam in the Hebrew from Migdal. Uh, this is the main Migdal in the area, so uh, the assumption we can make is that this is indeed her hometown. Well, what do travelers actually see of historical importance when they come to this place? Well, right now, the, the key center of attraction is actually, we're, we're looking at it as we speak, is the uh, ancient synagogue. It dates to the first century. Uh, we know that it was destroyed by the Romans when they came in to uh, attack the, uh, uh, the Jews during the, the Jewish revolt. Uh, so it was in, in existence in the time of Jesus. It's one of the most uh, remarkable synagogues they found. It has uh, mosaics. It has uh, uh, frescoes on the, on the walls. Uh, it, it had a uh, just an amazing uh, motif design, not only on the floor, but also on a, a major stone they found in the center that they're still trying to figure out. They're debating on what the meaning of that was. But uh, in addition to the synagogue, uh, they found these pools for drying the fish. Uh, they found uh, uh, mikvahs, ritual baths for the Jews. They, in fact, only town they ever known, uh, they found two synagogues here in uh, Migdal, Magdala, uh, dating from the first century. Maybe they had some kind of a, a divisional split there. <laughs> I was laughing. First Baptist, Second Baptist. <laughs> well, what was it that actually led to Magdala's discovery? Well, it was actually the building of a hotel, the hotel that uh, sits right next to it now. Uh, they knew there was going to be something here. They started building the hotel. Archaeologists are, of course, always on the alert if they find something, and they often do. Uh, they started uh, building the hotel, and they actually had to redesign the hotel because they didn't just find anything. They found this synagogue uh, and uh, redesigned the hotel to wrap around the synagogue so that the guests there can now look at this synagogue from the first century. And I understand that there are stones. I mean, we've looked at them. And I think I heard correctly that this is an original ancient street. Is that correct? Uh, that's right. The, the ancient street extends from here down to the shore. They actually found remains also of the port that would have been here, where fishermen, having caught their fish, would come to sell them for processing. Uh, so uh, they're finding all sorts of evidence from that first century. Now, you would think, at least I would, something as significant as this would somehow have surfaced long ago. How is it that this place was only discovered in 2009? I can hear some listeners saying, hey, wait a minute, I was there 15 years ago. They didn't have this uh, Magdala thing. Yeah, well, the site was known. They, that is, they, they understood there was something here called Migdal or Magdala. Uh, there were a few remains, that, but not many people had spent any time on it. They were owned by the Franciscans. So the real event that triggered it all was when they decided to build a hotel here for the travelers who came through. And when they discovered the synagogue, suddenly it went from being nothing and also ran 
to being a major site of discovery. All right, let's talk about the size of this synagogue. It's not some mega church at all. I think things were at a different scale back at the time of Jesus. Roughly how big would you say? Well, it, we know that it has three tiers of seating, and the seating is all the way around it. Assuming that the people had much less of a sense of space than we Americans do, uh, you could crowd uh, maybe a couple hundred people into that synagogue. Uh, but uh, for the size in that day, it still seemed fairly significant. Now, for those who've been to Israel, who've been to something like Capernaum or, uh, or even uh, Chorazin, uh, this seems to be smaller than that. But again, it's more magnificent in its design, and uh, probably a couple hundred people could be seated there comfortably. Uh, I'm sure I'm using the wrong archaeological terms, but there is a stone wall that has uh, painting on it of some sort. Yeah, that's actually a fresco. Uh, they, they, the stones, you know, in this area, it's black basalt rock. It doesn't look that attractive, but they would, uh, they would put plaster on the walls and then paint that plaster uh, so that it became a fresco. In this case, they had, right now, it looks like an orange uh, kind of a, a color, but it, but it would have been very colorful. And then uh, some of it was designed to look like it was painted marble on the walls. This is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger with Charlie Dyer. We are seated adjacent to an ancient synagogue was here at the time of Jesus, and that does lead to the question, you know, how likely is it that Jesus would have visited this very place we call Magdala? I think it's very likely. In fact, it was, it was Mark 139. It says, he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out demons. And what I find fascinating is Luke 2 says, Mary Magdalene had seven demons cast out of her. So here's a woman from Magdala who has demons cast out of her by Jesus. Mark tells us Jesus was going through the synagogues casting out demons. It's very possible the synagogue we're looking at is the synagogue that Mary was at when Jesus came through and experienced that healing. One of the most significant finds here in the synagogue where we now stand is the Magdala stone. Describe the stone, how large is it, and what's inscribed on its four sides? Well, the stone itself, I'm terrible at estimating the sizes, but I would guess that that's probably 18 inches to two feet maybe long mm-hmm. and a foot to a foot and a half wide. Uh, what really makes it significant, not only is it its uh, size, but the carvings on it, it has a rosette carved on top. That's where the Taurus scroll would have been laid out. As you face it on the lower side, because it has a slight tilt, slight angle upward on top, but on the, the lower side where, you, where the, the person reading the scroll would have sat, uh, it, it pictures a menorah. Uh, the seven branch menorah like that mm-hmm. in the temple. In fact, the, it's almost the impression that you're looking into the temple when you see it. On the side, they had columns, pictures of the, uh, what would have likely been the temple. And on the back side, there are two fiery wheels, two wheels with flames on them. Uh, many think it connects with the fiery chariot mentioned in Ezekiel that symbolized the presence of God, which in this case could symbolize the Holy of Holies the place where the Shekinah glory dwelt. Okay, Charlie, I'm looking at this stone, and again, maybe two feet long by, you know, 12 or 18 inches on top. I always thought of these scrolls as being, you know, two and three feet long, big things. You couldn't very well unroll one of those of that size on that stone. Well, but remember, the scrolls had two rolls on each end, so they would roll the scroll out, kind of like an old piano roll, Mm -hmm. roll to the correct spot that they were going to be reading for that service. Uh, The person just had to know how far to roll, and... Uh, But there's enough space there that they could see several columns of text, uh, which they would be reading that day. Uh, What do you think is the most significant aspect of Magdala? Uh, Well, certainly the synagogue is remarkable. But if I have to move beyond that, I I would actually say it's people. Uh, Because this, this place, you know, it's just stones as we're looking at it. What made it significant was the fact that Jesus went through these synagogues, that people like Mary Magdalene, Miriam from Migdal, would have been at this synagogue experiencing the healing that Jesus brought, uh, that he had interaction with the people here. Uh, Those were the living stones that Jesus came to seek and save. Hmm. 
What's a likely scenario that explains Magdala's burial, as I call it, for 2,000 years? What do we know about the archaeology of this area as it relates to weather patterns or geopolitics, for that matter, and other factors that kind of hid this place for so very long? Well, we know the site was destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 67. Then it just simply got covered over. That's when the Romans came into this land. Later they destroyed Jerusalem in A.D. 70. So it's during that Roman campaign. It started in Galilee, and Galilee felt the brunt of, of Rome's might, uh, even before Jerusalem did. Uh, but once it was destroyed, uh, the people had fled away. Uh, meantime, it rains. It has the dust storms that come through. Right behind us is Mount Arbel uh, with the runoff from that. Whether it was through dust or through the uh, runoff from rain, uh, the site just gradually became covered. So when they started excavating, it's just a few feet below ground. They're suddenly at the time of Jesus. Uh, so uh, the road ran by it. Uh, you know, it had everything around it, but uh, it was just undiscovered because there was so much geography here. You know, even today, John, how much of Israel has yet to be uncovered? Uh, Magdala happened to be one of those sites. You know, we've got a lot of people listening today, Charlie, to the land and the book, and and uh, I'm thinking about uh, parents with kids, and some of those families have said, maybe we should go to Israel. One of the things that I think about as you and I are, are looking at this uh, synagogue before us is what a neat a visual this is, even for children. They can grasp this. They can see it. I mean, it's, it's not behind glass. It's right there. You reach out and touch it. Yeah, that's one of the amazing things for Americans. You know, if this were in America... Uh, you would have had to go through two levels of security. Uh, there would be plexiglass between you and the site. It would be impossible to get near it. Uh, here you can lean over. In fact, uh, we're watching a group. They're leaning on the walls of the synagogue as the guide who's over there is explaining it. They're uh, a foot or two away from some of the frescoes, from some of the, the mosaics that are there. It's just that, that incredible. Uh, in terms of kids coming, it's a great learning experience. What I tell people is uh, once your child can travel, because, again, it's a long you know, 24 hours mm -hmm. from America to get here, but if your child can travel and can get along with a group, it's a great experience. Our daughter was 10, our son was 13 when we brought him for the very first time. And just beyond this synagogue, the Sea of Galilee itself. I mean, any child could understand that. Oh, absolutely. In fact, when they go down to the Duke and Altum, the, the chapel that they have here near the uh, sea, they have a replica of a boat in there with the water behind it. It looks like the boat's floating on the water. Uh, it's a great visual for those children. What should a visit to Magdala do for our understanding of Scripture? I think it gives us really great perspective on what it was like uh, for Jesus to be present in the synagogues there in Galilee. Imagine everyone coming out to hear this, this traveler. His word of him has come around. You know, they've heard of him, and now they hear he's coming to town. And so they could come out, they'd gather in the synagogue to hear his, his uh, message because his reputation preceded him that much. You know, they would crowd him back into that synagogue because they wanted to hear this, this guy who was a very controversial figure but rather dramatic. Hmm. What have I not asked you about Magdala that's significant to you? Well, you know, I mentioned just in passing that Duke in Altum, it's, which means put out into the deep uh, in Latin that, as they built this, because the complex is owned by the, the Roman Catholic Church. But I love that spot. You know, it uh, has a chapel uh, in the basement that's dedicated to uh, the woman with the issue of blood uh, who reached out to touch Jesus. The painting is stunning. Uh, because it pictures the moment when she experienced cleansing from the power of Jesus. But the whole chapel is dedicated to the women of the Bible, especially the women of the New Testament. Uh, we tend to skip over much of that, and yet they play a vital role in the life of Jesus. Uh, so they've taken uh, passages of Scripture that we sometimes pass over, and they, they've brought them to life. Uh, that, to me, is, is worth the, the extra walk, the hundred yards, to get down to it, because it gives us a whole different perspective on the, the life and ministry of Jesus. People listening to this conversation right now maybe are coming to the conclusion that, boy, this Jesus we speak of, 
This is not just history. It's not just religion. It's not just conversational stuff for, you know, self-bettering. But this is life and death. This is a matter of eternity. It is. What did they do now convicted that Jesus is real and they want to be forgiven of their, of their wrongdoing, their sins? Well, back then, many of them did turn to Jesus. And it was very simple. It was a matter for them, as it is for us today, to acknowledge, wait, Jesus is who he claimed to be. You know, he's liar, lunatic, or, or, or Lord of all. And he is the Lord of all. He's the Son of God who came, lived a perfect life, taught a, a standard that he lived by, and then uh, after having lived perfect life, instead of going to heaven, he went to the cross and died for our sins. Uh, and all we need to do these days is be able to say, Lord, I do believe you're the Son of God. I believe you came, lived that perfect life, and then died to pay for my sins. And so right now, Lord, I want to repent. I want to turn from my sin. I want to put my trust on getting to heaven in what your Son did for me. Lord, save me right now. Come into my life. Give me eternal life because of Jesus' work on my behalf. And I pray it in his name. Amen. Well, maybe you just prayed that prayer or would like uh, help in praying that prayer. A friend is, is willing to talk to you right now, answer your questions at 888-NEED-HIM. There's no cost. Uh, there's no obligation. Nobody's trying to sell you anything because there's nothing to buy. <laughs> it's just you and a volunteer having a great conversation about knowing Jesus, the one and only Savior of the world. So call without hesitation, 888-NEED-HIM. Charlie, we've got more of these visits from Israel in the months ahead here on the program. But for somebody who's never heard about our podcast, what is it and how do they find it? Oh, the podcast is great because, uh, you know, we're on all the radio programs, but that's usually just once or sometimes twice a week on those stations. A podcast, uh, they can go to thelandandthebook.org. And uh, there they can find uh, not just this program, they can find past programs, and they can listen to them at their convenience when it, when it fits their schedule. Or they can go back and listen to the program a second or third time. So it's really convenient sake for those people. That's thelandandthebook.org. I'm looking forward to our next segment. Charlie, we'll hop back into the studio. We'll see what listeners are curious about as you open your Bible and open the email next here on The Land and the Book. thing about the Bible is there's something new, something fresh every single time. And there's also something puzzling almost every single time. It's that deep a book, right? Hi, John Geiger here. This is The Land and the Book, and we're about to explore the book in further detail via your questions on this third segment with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. Before we get to that, though, where do you turn for more content about Israel, the Bible, and sharing the gospel with Jewish people once our program is over? Well, Life and Messiah has been focused recently on producing high-quality video content on their YouTube channel. Engaging videos are being released twice a week related to these important topics, and we encourage you to check out their content, which will be inspiring and uplifting. As a special for Land in the Book listeners, if you visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button, you can get a sneak peek at one of their upcoming videos and subscribe to their channel. That's lifeinmessiah.org and then click on the Moody Radio button. If you're new to the program, in this uh, third segment, we like to tackle questions that listeners have emailed us, things that they puzzle over as they read through Scripture, and uh, we'll share an email address where you can connect with yours as well later on. Starting with Ryan, who says, I love the land and the book. I read in a devotional today that it may have been 60 to 70 years between the time that Job lost everything before it was restored. 
I'd never heard this before and assumed from reading the book of Job that his family and possessions were restored within months or a year. What do you think? Well, I have to admit, I'd never heard that suggestion either. I, I don't see any evidence for it in the text itself. You know, in chapter 42, we're told what happened at the end of Job's test. Job's friends repented. Job prayed for them. And then it says, after Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. Now that's verse 10 there. Friends and family, it says in the next verse, then came to Job, bringing gifts to help the process of restoring his material wealth. And the text says, the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than his first. And then it names what happened. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. Well, if those are all doubled, the material possessions are actually doubled. He has twice as many animals as he had before. The number of children is exactly the same. However, we also need to remember his first children hadn't ceased to exist at the point of physical death. So he really did end up with twice as many children, half of which were now in heaven. And then the text adds, after this, Job lived 140 years. And though we're not told how old he was when he first was tempted, the fact that God doubled everything else, I think suggests God doubled the amount of time Job lived prior to his temptation, meaning he was 70 when he was tempted, but then he lived an additional 140 years afterward. The fact that the text suggests people came to visit shortly after he was restored, and the fact that God's blessing doubled what Job had prior to his test, that suggests to me that the final 140 years, all of it, must have been years of blessing. Pat takes us to Exodus chapter 5. In verse 1, Moses and Aaron tell Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. Now, other than the fact that the Lord may have told Moses to say that, since he told him what to say, why would he lie about it? God was removing them from Egypt, and obviously for more than three days. So what's going on? Yeah, and take this uh, with a grain of salt now. I, I think there is a key here, though, to understanding, and that's to understanding bargaining within the ancient cultural context. In those days, uh, when bargaining to purchase something, the process started with the seller listing a, a higher price. Everybody knew you weren't to pay that. And the buyer then started by giving a lower price. And the goal was to eventually reach a price that was acceptable to both. Uh, in the same way, when asking a favor or request of someone, the process seemed to reverse. That is, the one making the request first made an offer that's different from what they ultimately wanted. And as the process went forward, the, the true nature of the request became apparent. You know, when Abraham bargained with God over Sodom in Genesis 18, he started by asking if Sodom could be saved, if, if 50 righteous could be found. And once God agreed, then he, well, what about 45, 40, 30, 20, 10? Now, that wasn't deception or lying. That's just the, the way bargaining was done in the Middle East. And in the same way, I think I see Moses representing God and asking for permission for Israel to leave Egypt and hold a religious festival in the wilderness. Now, that was the opening offer or, or bid, if you will, uh, with the expectation that the ultimate nature of his request would be revealed as the negotiations progressed. But Pharaoh cut the entire process short. So rather than seeing Moses lying or being dishonest, I think we can see it as a typical negotiation in that culture with everyone knowing the process would be expected to lead to the full extent of the request that's going to be ultimately asked. Pharaoh's response in verse 2 suggests his reason for refusing to negotiate. He refused to acknowledge the God of Israel or even to begin the negotiating process with him. This is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, always glad to answer your questions which you can email to us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. 
Mary writes, Can you please explain God's feelings toward unbelievers? For example, John 3.16 clearly says God so loved the world. But other scriptures indicate hate towards haters of God. Is it true that God hates the sin but loves the sinner? And does God so love the world mean that God loves the elect? Well, I'm not sure we can squeeze all this into a simple answer. So uh, it's true. God does so love the world he gave his only begotten son to purchase salvation. That supreme act of sacrifice on God's part, on Jesus's part, clearly demonstrates his love for the unsaved. You know, Peter wrote that God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Uh, in 1 Timothy, Paul said, God wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, those all demonstrate that attribute of love that's a key aspect of God's very nature. In fact, uh, John wrote in 1 John 4, 8, God is love. But while God is love, he has other attributes. He's also absolutely just and holy. Sin can't dwell with him. Proverbs 6, 16 to 19 lists seven specific things it says the Lord hates. In Jeremiah 30, he talks about the fierce anger of the Lord that will pour out on those who refuse to respond to his love. And these aren't just Old Testament concepts. They, they can be seen in, uh, in passages in Romans, Ephesians, Colossians, uh, in Revelation, where it talks about the wrath of God. Uh, let me end with one passage I think that serves as a reminder of, of all of this. It says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The fact that God doesn't immediately judge for sin shows his love and mercy. But at some point, his mercy does end and his justice has to be satisfied. And only God himself knows when someone might cross that line. Page asks, what are some wise ways we can prepare for such conditions as living in a cashless society? Christians being banned from buying, selling, worshiping, one world currency, one world government. Do I need to convert some funds to gold, stock up on meals ready to eat, get documents like passports together? I respect your opinion and would greatly appreciate any recommendations. Now, the key is to remember two truths. First, God is in control, so we don't need to worry about what tomorrow holds. Uh, Jesus said that in Matthew chapter 6. Second, God expects us to exercise wisdom in preparing for the future. Proverbs chapter 6 talks about that. So I know biblically the events described in the Great Tribulation, which include the mark of the beast in Revelation 13, will take place after God removes the church from earth. So I know we can have confidence that we won't experience that specific event. But I balance that with Jesus's words to his disciples. In the world, you'll have tribulation, he said in John 16. That is, we can expect to experience times of difficulty and struggle in this life. Uh, that's more true in some countries like North Korea or China or Iran or other communist or Muslim countries than it is in the United States, at least right now. But in light of that, I don't see a problem with individuals taking reasonable precautions for the future as long as they're not being guided by panic or fear. For those who've been around long enough, remember Y2K when it was approaching? You know, there were dire warnings of all the computers were going to shut down, gas pumps wouldn't work, banks and credit cards wouldn't be accessible, water and electricity were going to stop working, and it was uh, going to be lawlessness, rioting, chaos. People were spending thousands of dollars stocking up on things so they could be prepared. Well, my wife and I decided the best course of action, since we didn't know what the future held, would be to buy a few more extra bottles of water than we usually keep in the house, along with some additional packs of batteries and some extra cans of soup. So if there was a problem, that could help us get through a short period of trouble. But if nothing happened, we could use everything we'd purchased without having to anything go to waste. So Y2K, well, it turned out to be a bust, and we felt that we'd made a wise course of action. Now, all of that to say, 
I don't have a problem with individuals having things like food, bottled water, or batteries on hand, you know, if an emergency or natural disaster arises. But I really don't recommend storing up months or years of food or buying gold or cryptocurrency or doing anything that's speculative. Uh, You want to have short-term preparations for any kind of emergency, and hopefully enough that you could also share with family or friends or neighbors in need. It's a great witnessing opportunity. But avoid the tendency to panic or do something out of fear. Uh, This is a place where Having tried to live wisely in the end, we just need to place our trust in the Lord. Nathan says, my wife and I are looking for a family devotional book to share with our kids ages one to seven. Do you have any suggestions? We're looking for something that's true to scripture uh, and not superficial. Any ideas? Yeah. uh, One book I can suggest is called Paw Paw Chuck's Big Ideas in the Bible. It was written by Chuck Swindoll back in the mid nineties. I think it does a good job of relating biblical truth to kids. Another might be Bible and Pictures for Little Eyes by Kenneth Taylor. Now, those books might be too simple for a seven-year-old, but they're worth considering. And another book you might want to check out, though it's not a devotional, is one by my co-host, John. It's called Kids Say the Wisest Things. And you can find a link to that in our Land in the Book website page. All right. Thank you, Charlie. Stick around. Charlie Dyer's devotional is next, right here. I suppose we've all got regrets. You know, one of mine, oddly enough, is that I never took Latin. There is so much to be gained from having a Latin base of grammar education. It just influences so much. I'm John Geiger. This is The Land and the Book. Charlie, uh, you're going to dip into a little bit of Latin yourself, I understand. Yeah, at least for one phrase, John. That's in your devotional coming up. I'm not going to give that away. Instead, I'm going to give the microphone to somebody else who has been to Israel and wants to share this Holy Land experience with you and me. Hello, this is Pastor Kurt Krohn from Faith Bible Church in DeSoto, Texas. I've been on several tours with Charlie and loved our trips to uh, Israel. I would say one of the things that impresses me most is that my theological education was very expensive, but it seems to me that it would be good for every future pastor or Bible teacher to spend money on a tour of Israel. Getting to know the land is an invaluable tool as you share and study the Word. My experience of the land was that um, I really didn't want to go, but the Spirit kept leading me to go. And uh, when I got there, you know, I saw some things, you know, in my life. uh, It had changed. You know, the Spirit fell on me. And I think it took me to another level in my uh, spirituality. I think it was the first step in uh, trusting in God and not man. I think that's what that first step was about when I went to the Holy Land. Charlie, about that Latin phrase, where are we going? Well, we're going to be heading to the Israel Museum. In fact, you need to keep your headset on as we head inside the museum. You know, that's going to allow you to hear my explanation of what we're about to see without my having to talk too loudly and disturb others around us. So rather than snaking our way through the archaeological section chronologically, I want to take us on a shortcut to reach one particular area, and then afterward I'll give you some free time. You can explore the rest of the fascinating artifacts that are on display. But while we work our way down the different corridors, I want to remind Mind anyone who makes quarterly payments to the IRS that in just over two weeks, your third payment in mid-September comes due. You'll still be getting over jet lag, so make sure to write yourself a note so you don't forget. 
And our next stop should be a good reminder of the importance of not cheating or fudging or cutting corners when it comes to your financial obligations like those to the IRS. (laughs) Here we are. Now, I admit at first this might seem underwhelming, but you're looking at a display of different weights uncovered at excavations. A shekel is a unit of money today in Israel, but in ancient days it was a unit of weight. Most of the weights on display here are made of either bronze or stone, and I want us to focus on two of the larger stone weights. They appear to be similar in size, and they're assumed to be 400 shekel weights. That's the amount of silver Abraham had to pay to purchase the cave of Machpelah and the surrounding field. In real terms, that's the equivalent of 10 pounds of silver, which was an extravagant price at the time. And Genesis 23:16 says the silver was weighed out according to the weight current among the merchants. 400 shekels was the equivalent of eight minas, which we, most people don't know what a mina is, but a mina was the equivalent of 50 shekels. <laughs> okay, so the stone weights are interesting, though not earth-shattering. Uh, you can now envision the amount of silver Abraham had to weigh out to pay for the field in the cave. But I want you to look more closely at those two stones. They look very similar. But are they exactly the same? I'm sure that if you could pick them up and hold them in your hands, you would quickly know the answer to my question. Unfortunately, the museum guards would frown on anyone trying to do that. The reality is that the two weights are not exactly the same. In fact, there's almost a half pound difference between them. One weighs over a third of a pound more than it should, while the other weighs about a tenth of a pound less than it should. Depending on which weight was being used, either the buyer or the seller was getting cheated. And that's why the old Latin expression, and here it is, John, caveat emptor, buyer beware, is an accurate warning for anyone doing business in Bible times. The use of inaccurate weights was one of several ways a merchant could cheat someone in the market. To understand what I mean, listen to the prophet Amos quote the complaints of the merchants in Amos 8, verses 5 and 6. When will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may open the wheat market to make the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger and to cheat with dishonest scales, selling even the sweepings with the wheat? Now, some of what Amos said might not make much sense to you, at least initially. So let me explain. The merchants were complaining first about the religious limitations on commercial activity during the Sabbath and other religious holidays. God set up those restrictions, but they resented them for cutting into their business. You snooze, you lose. You don't make money when the store is closed. At least that was their philosophy. But then Amos put a microscope to the business practices they were using when the market was open. They made the bushel smaller. The word for bushel is ephah, which actually holds about three-fifths of what we know as a bushel basket. By making the ephah slightly smaller than it ought to be, they were cheating the buyer by selling them slightly less than they were expecting. (laughs) Ever buy a family-sized box of cereal only to discover when you got home that the box was only half full? And then in small print, you might have discovered the words, sold by weight, not by volume, or contents may have shifted during transport. But the end result is that what you thought you were buying and what you actually received didn't match? Well, those practices have been around for thousands of years. The sellers in Amos' day went even further. They sold the sweepings with the wheat. That is, rather than completely separating the wheat from the chaff when winnowing, they conveniently left a little of the chaff in with the wheat. It was mixed in so you really didn't notice it until you got home and saw the useless husks settling to the bottom of the basket. Once you separated them out, 
you ended up with less wheat than you thought. But getting less than you expected was only half the problem. The merchants also made the shekel bigger. Using a scale to weigh out your purchase, they would put their stone shekel weight on one side of the scale while you placed your silver on the other side until the scale balanced out. But if their shekel weight was slightly larger than it ought to be, you were actually being forced to pay more than you expected for your purchase. And remember, this was written when there weren't standardized coins. You were weighing out pieces of gold or silver or copper until they matched the weight of that stone on the other side of the scale. The merchant's heavier shekel weight ended up costing you more money. Worse yet, if the scale was rigged so that it was a little off-center, then the amount you needed to place on your side of the scale had to be even greater to get the scale to balance. That's what Amos meant by dishonest scales. Caveat emptor, buyer beware. You had to be aware of all the tricks of the trade used by dishonest merchants to cheat their customers. And the ones hurting most were the poor and needy who weren't always aware of the ways they were being conned out of their money. And maybe that's why God kept emphasizing the importance of honesty in our dealings with others. In Leviticus 19, 35 and 36, God said, Do not use dishonest standards when measuring length, weight, or quantity. Use honest scales and honest weights, an honest ephah, and an honest hin, which was a liquid measure of volume. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Or Deuteronomy 23, 13 to 16, where God said, Do not have two different weights in your bag, one heavy and one light. Do not have two different measures in your house, one large, one small. You must have accurate and honest weights and measures so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. For the Lord your God detests anyone who does these things, anyone who deals dishonestly. So what lessons can we take away from these stone weights in front of us? Well, first, I think there's a reminder from a human perspective of just how easy it is to cheat, misrepresenting something you're selling to someone else, not doing all the work you promised to do for someone, not returning something you find when you know who lost it, not reporting all your income to the IRS. Let's be realistic. It's easy to cheat. Opportunities abound all around us. But that leads to the second lesson. God calls on his followers to walk a different path. You might be able to cheat and fool others, but you can't fool God. He's the God of truth, and he expects those who claim to follow him to reflect his character. Your testimony, your reputation, and the reputation of the God you claim to follow are all at stake every time you have an encounter with someone else. Resist the temptation to exchange all of that for a few dollars gained dishonestly. Keep your priorities straight and focus on the eternal rewards rather than any short-term selfish gain. Be known for your honesty and your generosity. And remember, the one person you can't cheat is God. Boy, those are such important reminders. Thank you, Charlie, for that devotional. Maybe you'd like to hear it again. You can always do that again at our website, thelandandthebook.org. For our host, Charlie Dyer, and our producer, Dan Anderson, I'm John Geiger, encouraging you to share us with a friend. And you should know that The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio. That's a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. Have a great day, William. you?